Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the role of dog whistle politics in the Yunkin victory in the Virginia governor's race and the debacle for the Democrats who lost the other top races along with control of the state legislature and speak with Amanda Marcotte, a feminist author, blogger and political writer for Salon. She is the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America and Truth Itself, and her latest article at Salon is Virginia Election, Democrats Left Listless Without Donald Trump. Youngkin didn't need Trump for a bigotry-based campaign, but McAuliffe couldn't get out deflated voters without him. We will discuss how a lot of Virginians who voted for Joe Biden in 2020, 33%, stayed home while Republicans only saw a 15% drop-off in turnout, and in the end, Youngkin got 85% of the vote share Trump got the year before, but Democratic candidate Terry McAuliffe got only 66% of Biden's 2020 share. Then we'll speak with Amy Freed, a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine and the author of Pathways to Polling, Crisis, Cooperation and the Making of Public Opinion Professions, and her latest book, co-authored with Douglas Harris, At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponized Distrust from Goldwater to Trump. We will discuss whether the Republicans can run two simultaneous campaigns in 2022, one for the Trumpsters and another Yunkin-like campaign to reassure suburban women. Then finally, we'll assess how the Supreme Court might rule on the New York gun case about which they heard oral arguments today. Joining us is Jake Charles, the Executive Director of the Center for Firearms Law at Duke University, who writes and teaches on the legal regulation of state and private violence, Second Amendment doctrine and theory, and the place of guns in the criminal legal system. We'll discuss the conservative majority's apparent bias towards rural red states against urban blue states when it comes to guns, indicating that protections for citizens against the proliferation of guns in cities will be overturned. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Amanda Marcotte, a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monster Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America, and Truth Itself. And her latest article at Salon is Virginia Election, Democrats Left Listless Without Trump. Youngkin didn't need Trump for a bigotry-based campaign, but McAuliffe couldn't get out deflated voters without him. Welcome to Background Briefing, Amanda Marcotte. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And as your article points out, a lot of people who voted for Joe Biden in 2020, that 33%, however, stayed home. Meanwhile, Republicans only saw a 15% drop-off in turnoff. 
which is unusual for a midterm or not even a midterm. This one is a is a really an off-year election. And in the end, Youngkin got 85% of the vote share Trump got the year before and Democratic candidate Terry McAuliffe only 60%, 66% of Biden's 2020 share. So what went wrong, do you think, for the Democrats? I mean, it's a tough thing because, you know, both... Youngkin and McAuliffe got higher than turnout than you've seen in previous years. It's just that Youngkin was able to retain a much hard, larger share of the Trump vote than McAuliffe was of the Biden vote. And I think that ultimately it's because Democrats, Democratic voters were just not as energized as Republican voters. Um, there's a lot of reasons for this. There's the structural reason, which is that the party whose president is in the White House tends to get less enthusiasm in midterms and off-year elections anyway because their voters are complacent. They think they've won. They don't really care. Second of all, however, I think it was hard to motivate Democratic voters because nothing is getting done. Everything is kind of terrible and people are feeling salty about it. I don't think they necessarily underestimate the threat of Trumpism. It's just, you know, again, more Democrats turned out than I think were expected. It was just Republicans were completely fired up because they're mad about losing the election. They were fired up with a bunch of racist BS attacks and they turned out and Democrats just didn't find a message that would get their own voters turned out in the same way. So, but is there a fault with the campaign that McAuliffe ran, apart from his gaffe over saying that parents shouldn't get involved in school curriculums? He seemed to run the same kind of campaign that Hillary Clinton ran in 2016 that clearly didn't work, where the focus was on what a bad guy Trump is. And Meanwhile, the other guys running these dog whistles about critical race theory, which is obviously completely bogus. But the anxiety that underlies suburban mothers probably has a lot to do with the COVID thing and the vaccines and masks, along with this lie about critical race theory. I don't know why he didn't take it on head on, why he kept pounding away that this guy's Trump, when clearly yeah. it was a cynical Republican attempt to run a guy that was not like Trump, but at the same time to get the Trumpsters to vote for him. Yeah, it's it continues to be a mistake that the Democrats make that they think Trump is the problem. They think Trump's particularly noxious personality is the issue. And they they think Trump and, and maybe that is for their voters, like their voters like hate Trump and think he's rude and gross. But like for Republican voters, he's always just been a vehicle for what really moves them, which is, you know, racism. I don't don't know how else to put this. It's obviously just resentment, politics and racism. And Youngkin had that crap dialed all the way up to 11. And and he was no different than Trump in that. He's just a little less orange and a little less obnoxious. And I think that McAuliffe... Like a lot of them, the problem with Democrats is they keep telling themselves the story of they don't like the culture war issue stuff. And I agree, it's gross. Like they're lying about teaching Martin Luther King in schools, and it feels gross even engaging the lie because you just feel muddy by talking about the lies, you know? And it's like, but what happens is that the lie takes off, the lie spreads. 
you don't rebut it. And then at the last minute, they realize they're going to lose because of this lie and they start rebutting it. And by then it's too late. It's already sunk in. And I think like, for instance, that's why I don't think it's wise to get away from that. What parents are teaching in school or whether parents have a say in what's being taught in schools. Gaff is like, if McAuliffe had and his people had decided back in January to start taking seriously this critical race theory attack, they would have been ready for that attack when it happened on stage, right? He would have been prepared. He would have had a a smarter talking point than this bumbling thing that made it sound like he doesn't want parents involved in education. He could have said something, you know, I think a good line to reply with would have been something like, well, I believe that Martin Luther King Jr. should still be taught in schools. I don't know why my opponent is opposed to that. I don't know why my opponent thinks that Harriet Tubman should be taken out of schools, that sort of thing. And, and really kind of reframe the issue for what it was, which is censorship, fascist style book burning politics, you know? Right. And I, I think you win that fight, but he right. wouldn't have the fight. And so it, he lost. And again, I'm speaking with Amanda Marcotte, who's a feminist author, blogger, and political writer at Salon. She is the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America, and Truth Itself. And her latest article at Salon is Virginia Election, Democrats Left Listless Without Donald Trump. Youngkin didn't need Trump for a bigotry-based campaign, but McAuliffe couldn't get out-deflated voters without him. And Amanda, just a few days ago, I interviewed a pollster who did the poll for the Public Religion Institute uh, on uh, increasingly toxic politics and the growing divide and the growing amount of delusion and QAnon kind of thinking in, in the Republican ranks. But we talked a little bit about this, and she said that in the poll, she asked, if you ask these kind of suburban mothers whether... In schools, they should teach the good and the bad of American history. They'll agree with you. They'll say yes. But if you say to them, it's the same group of people, if you say, should you teach critical race theory in public schools, you'll get a resounding no. So that's, again, I don't know. To just <laughs> well, that's answer, why you reframe it in your words and not in their words. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, that, that's why I brought it up. So do you think that the Republicans, this, this was clearly a test run for 2022, wouldn't you agree, for the Republicans? Yeah, and I think um, unless Democrats are prepared to learn some of the lessons from it, we're going to be looking at a huge bloodbath. I mean, it's an uphill battle anyway for Democrats. And, you know, I don't know what else to say. (laughs) Right. Well, the agony going on now with Biden twisting in the wind and uh, even saying that McAuliffe would win and then getting back to the United States from the climate conference in Glasgow and obviously having some really bad news and trying to get out from under it by making it all seem like things are going to get done. But obviously, at a very basic level, and you mentioned the low-information voters, they just want results, and the Democrats have got the trifecta. They own the House, the Senate, and the White House, even by a thin margin, and they're not getting anything done. In fact... It looks like this the worst of sausage making, the worst of infighting, and the worst of paralysis. So, yeah. And even if they get something done in the next uh, week or so, they still have to score these bills, and that'll take, take you more sausage making all the way through Thanksgiving. So how much do you think 
the optics of what's going on with Democrat, intramural Democratic fighting affected this race? Um, so this is a tough one because the problem with low information voters is I bet half of them don't even know that there's been a bill being debated in D.C. But what I would say is that Biden came into office making a lot of really big promises and the most important, biggest, most immediately obvious one was shots in arms beat the pandemic, right? And here it is, November. Shots didn't go into arms at the rate they needed to. Every time you go to the store, you still have to put on a mask. And people are wondering, where's, how have you actually fixed this problem? Like, the contrast between the Democrats and Trumps was really obvious when Trump was in office. I mean, you know, he was actively, like, trying to, like, spread the disease. I mean, but, like, I think that people are really tired of, they, they were, they, a promise was made and a promise was not kept. And as you can make excuses for that day and night, but people can see with their own two eyes you still have to wear a mask at the store. And that feels like a promise not kept. And then what happens is all this other stuff happens. The, the, you, you open the newspaper, you may not understand the ins and outs of this debate, but what you do understand is that they're not passing crap, right? That they're mired in all the sausage making. They're probably never gonna pass crap. And of course people just go, you know what, my vote doesn't count. My vote doesn't matter. It's it's not easy to vote. It's easier in Virginia than a lot of places, but you know, especially when you're talking about people who have childcare issues, other workplace related issues, the pandemic continues to make bad. Um, you know, I can see why people say I I'm not going to vote. Right, but in terms of what you were suggesting earlier of the Democrats' failure to frame things properly, my sense is that. It's actually Republican Party policy. It's unstated, but it's Republican Party policy to sabotage Biden to the extent to which they are invested in Americans dying of COVID. I mean, the fact of the matter is that it's the people who have not gotten vaccination that's perpetuating this Delta strain and continuing this agony, and they are all in the Trump world, and it's Trump's people like Tucker Carlson who are telling them not to get vaccinated. So I don't understand why the Democrats can't call the Republicans out. They're the party of death, for God's sake. I mean, they could, and I think to an extent have. Like, Biden certainly was hitting that message over the summer. He got a little frustrated by it. But at the end of the day, I think what happens is I, it's both true that I think a lot of people, a lot of Democratic voters that didn't turn out understand that it's Republic. I think almost everyone understands the people not getting vaccinated are stubborn Republicans who won't do it because Biden said so, right? I don't think there's a lot of confusion around this point. What I do think is that it still is a buck stops here problem for Biden because he didn't make them. And, you know, I think there was a lot more sympathy for Biden over the summer when they started to refuse and realization that they were the problem. But at a certain point, people start looking to the leader and they're like, well, what are you going to do about it? Right. And he, 
did eventually say that they were going to have vaccine mandates, but by and large, they haven't gone into action. No deadline has been announced. OSHA is still dragging its heels. They never bothered to do a vaccine mandate to get on planes. So, yes, the blame falls on Tucker Carlson for convincing Republicans not to get vaccinated. But the blame also falls on Biden for not recognizing this reality sooner and doing something about it. And what about the perception of of kind of weakness that they're not in the fight in the way we know how riled up the Republicans are? And in this poll that I mentioned from the Public Religion Institute indicates that thirty percent of them think that violence might be necessary. So they're fired up. But meanwhile, we've witnessed January the sixth and the horrors of that storming of the Capitol, which did obviously offend a lot of people in this country. Nevertheless, the Republicans are now rewriting history. It didn't really happen. They were, it was a love fest. Uh, it was all Antifa. And then, as you point out in your article, the Justice Department won't even arrest Steve Bannon, despite the fact that he's in contempt of Congress. And nobody's been, really been held to account for the riot, uh, although there isn't obviously a select committee investigating it. But still, the people that were actually caught <laughs> by the FBI... They're getting slapped on the risk, and Bannon's not in the jail that they've got, the cell they've got in the basement of the Capitol, which the Democrats could do. So is that a factor, that they just don't look like they're in the fight? Yeah, I mean, uh, Michael T. Sweeney on Twitter pointed out that Democrats keep saying over and over that running against Trump, Trump is good at getting out the vote, the Democratic vote, like people hate him, they they will turn out to stick it to him, right? Well, one way that you could do that is to arrest him for his myriad of crimes. And here's the thing. What causes people to not turn out for Democrats is they, they people know the Republicans are corrupt. They know that they're sold out to corporate interests. They know that they're sold out to the rich. But they also believe that's true of the Democrats. And when you see someone like, when you see what happened on January 6th, which was that it was an openly open conspiracy of Trump and his lawyers, and they weren't hiding what they were doing. They did it right in public. He incited a riot on television, (laughs) right there in front of everybody. Uh, We have all this reporting that comes out every day about the war room and the the emails and the attempts to leverage the violent riot against Mike Pence. It's not a mystery what happened, but somehow the only people that are getting arrested for it are these like low level like dudes that just did what they were told basically you know the people who actually invaded the capital we're not we're seeing the rich leaders all escape justice, and all that ends up doing is reinforcing people's cynicism, their belief that money puts you above the law, the belief that you know, powerful people never pay for their crimes. And it's happening on the Democrats' watch. So, of course, they're cynical. I'm not saying they're going to vote for Republicans. I think a lot of people are arguing that I'm saying that they're voting for Republicans. I'm not. I'm saying that they're just not voting. They're like, well, Republicans are dirty, but Democrats are inept, so why vote, you know? Well, just in closing, not to leave us on a a pessimistic note. What can turn it around, do you think, Amanda? Um, first and foremost, the vaccine mandates need to come down faster and harder. Um, Biden needs to ban anybody who's not vaccinated from an airplane 
before Thanksgiving. He won't, but that would be a really big deal because it would say, I'm serious, I'm not just making noises on TV, but I'm actually going to get this pandemic licked, I'm going to get those masks off your face, I'm going to get those kids back to school, right? That would be the first thing. I would say the second thing would be, yeah, let's start arresting people. Let's arrest everyone that they could possibly arrest that's involved with Trump and all of his crimes. Ideally, Trump himself, but anyone, really. Let's start proving that democracy can work, which is what Biden said, he himself has said, is necessary in order to turn things around. And third, and this might be the hardest, bizarrely, because it's outside of Biden's control, is pass the Build Back Better plan. Get some some money flowing to folks. Like, that would help a lot. I, You know, unfortunately, that's out of his control. It's being stymied by Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. So I think Biden should, you know, kind of refocus on what he can do with executive power. And two things he can do are truly make headway on this pandemic and truly make headway on on justice for Trump and showing that people who try to un- overthrow our democracy pay the price for it. Well, Amanda Makata, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Amanda Makata, who's a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America, and Truth Itself. And her latest article at Salon is Virginia Election, Democrats Left Listless Without Trump. Youngkin didn't need Trump for a bigotry-based campaign, but McAuliffe couldn't get out deflated voters without him. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing whether the Republicans can run two simultaneous campaigns in 2022, one for the Trumpsters and another Youngkin-like campaign to reassure suburban women. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Amy Freed, the professor and chair in the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine. She's the author of Pathways to Polling, Crisis Cooperation and the Making of Public Opinion Professions. And her latest book, co-authored with Douglas Harris, is At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponized Distrust from Goldwater to Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Amy Freed. It's great to be back, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And it turns out that even though Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat running for governor in Virginia, ran against Donald Trump, the Republican candidate who won, Glenn Youngkin, he ran away from Trump and ran on uh, critical race theory and tried to assure suburban mums that uh, it wouldn't be taught in schools, even though it's not taught in schools anywhere. So the idea of in terms of weaponizing distrust from Goldwater to Trump, this was a pretty cynical ploy, was it not, to sort of dress up Trump's party in different clothes, in the case of Youngkin and sort of family-friendly, fleecy jacket. 
uh, yeah, that's a really interesting metaphor. And I think I'd extend it in a little way because it's almost like a, a backstage part of it and a, a front stage part where you did see Yunkin go on some right wing radio and other media to make more hardcore appeals to Trumpers. And, and then, you know, Trump had some support for him. Uh, but then out in the on the main stage, as it were, he was trying to speak to these more moderate suburban voters and and yeah, and doing it in a way that's not going to be as offensive as as Trump would be to them while on the same by the same token, also um, appealing to certain, you know, cult, making certain kinds of cultural arguments. So do you think this is a trial run for the Republicans in 2022? And if so, it would look bad for the Democrats. Midterms are always challenging. You know, I mean, it's very unusual for the president's party to gain seats or even really hold steady. So it, it very likely could be a very difficult time in 2022. On the other hand, um, Virginia has has kind of a long history where the in the governor's races they they tend to you know reject the party uh, in the White House uh, so it's 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 somewhat expected here I I think there are some possibilities though for Democrats to you know, do a little bit better I mean I don't think this is replicable in some places Trump is going to get involved in a lot of primaries, and there will be a number of candidates who are more tr- overtly Trumpy <laughs> than Youngkin, who uh, who who would be able to, uh, you know, be taken advantage of in a way by Democrats, and hopefully the Democrats also have more that they're going to run on, um, you know, by by passing legislation, the economy doing better, COVID really uh, being put in the rearview mirror. So then is there a problem with candidates like McAuliffe, who's very close to the Clintons, and he ran a campaign almost identical to the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016, which is all based upon Donald Trump is a terrible person and people who vote for him are deplorable. Well, that's essentially the campaign. He didn't call them deplorable, but that was the campaign he ran on. And meanwhile, you've got Youngkin talking about critical race theory, and McAuliffe, of course, made a terrible gaffe saying that parents shouldn't be involved in school curriculums. So my sense is that he didn't really address what the other guy was saying, and he was, you know, running on a failed playbook from 2016. Uh, yeah, and Youngkin didn't have much of a really uh, policy agenda at all, which in a way was made it a little harder for him to attack uh, on certain things. But there were certain things that, that I think could have gotten uh, more attention, certainly from from Macaulay and talked about what, you know, focus more on what he had accomplished and what Democrats had accomplished in Virginia. You know, I, I think that I think that would have made some difference. And again, I'm speaking with Amy Freed, who's a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine. She's the author of Pathways to Polling, Crisis, Cooperation, and the Making Public Opinion Professions. And her latest book, co-authored with Douglas Harris, is At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponized Distrust from Goldwater to Trump. So recently, Amy, I interviewed a pollster 
with the, the Public Religion Institute who'd done a poll on the deepening divide in this country and the attitudes of Republican voters, which a lot of the information was quite alarming. But she said in her polling, she found that if you told the kind of suburban housewives that Glenn Youngkin got to vote for him, if you told those people, how do you feel about teaching the good and the bad of American history in schools, they would say, yes, we should do that. But if you told that same group of people, should we teach critical race theory in schools, you'll get a resounding no. So again, I'm puzzled why McAuliffe didn't take on Youngkin on his main, as you say, he didn't really have a platform or any policies, but this was the one that he was pounding away on, critical race theory. Right. I mean, I think this is go- this is going to be a challenge in a lot of different places for Democrats because the label itself has just become so incredibly negative and people read into it all sorts of things. Um, you know, and I think simply going and answering is, you know, I've seen a lot of people say, well, oh, well, no one really teaches critical race theory in K through 12. It's really a law school um, sort of thing, which is absolutely true. But somehow that, that I think is insufficient. I think to sort of try to answer it the way uh, that, you know, that pollster described it as, as a more positive thing, like let's just understand our country and the good and the bad in our country uh, would, would, would be more helpful and then go on to other issues that make a difference in people's lives. Um, I mean, one of the things we say in the in this latest book at War with Government as a as a way for Democrats to counter it is to really be in touch with the things that are affecting people's lives in a more direct way and and speaking to those with, you know, an understanding of of what's going on for people and with particular policies that are going to help them. Um, You know, so moving away from these more symbolic and cultural kinds of issues, which is you know, really the way that that critical race theory has been used. Well, there was also an election in Minneapolis on effectively not defunding the police, but coming up with a different kind of police force, and it was defeated as well. So is that a part of this mix that we're talking about here in terms of, of what happened in Virginia and also what happened in Minnesota? Well, to some extent, but, you know, you, there also were some progressive wins among candidates, um, you know, and, and from what I've seen when it comes to school board elections, a lot of, I've read, you know, one piece on this uh, regarding, you know, yesterday's elections. Most of the elections were, uh, you know, kind of in line with more general partisan trends. So like, uh, you know, if you're in a conservative area, then you have, um, you know, conservatives elected to school boards that say, we're not going to teach anything about race or we're not going to teach critical race theory. But in other places, you know, more liberal places, it goes the other way. So I, I think there are I think there are probably ways to handle uh, to handle these kinds of issues. And some of it is coming down to just sort of what kind of place it is to begin with. And we can think of Virginia as being this you know, more liberal sort of place, but it's really not that long ago that they were electing Republican governors. Um, you know, it's it seems like, oh, this is just a blue state, but there you know, there have been there have been Republican governors, you know, 
with it, certainly, you know, at least in the last few decades. Um, so, um, and, you know, you, you have this, you have this kind of switch right now and that may be turned on for people as, as Biden's approvals are, are lower that then depresses the, the democratic vote. Well, Biden's approvals are at 42%, which is as low as you get. The only other person who had, in recent history, had that low approval ratings at this time was Donald Trump. Exactly. And it does feel like he's sort of twisting in the wind. I mean, Nancy Pelosi last Thursday hoped that the House progressives would pass the uh, bipartisan Senate bill, and she asked them not to embarrass Biden as he goes abroad. Well... They did, at least one assumes they embarrassed Biden. But on the other hand, they're arguing, the House progressives are arguing that it's just two senators, uh, Manchin and Cinema, who are holding up progress and won't tell us what they want and what they don't want. So do you think that this, in very simple terms, Amy, that the American public, they want their politicians, they want they voted Biden in and they voted in a, in a trifecta for the Democrats, the House, the Senate, and the White House, and they expect results, and they want results from from their government, and if they don't, uh, then they'll boot them out. I mean, is that what's going on here at the simplest level? Well, I I do think that's part of what's going on, and it's not an unusual thing in you know, American history, most of the time, the, you know, the Democrat, the party in power, whatever the party in power is in the White House is going to lose seats in the in the midterms doesn't always happen, but it tends to happen. And the problem for Democrats now in Congress is the margins are so small. I mean, basically, you know, there is no margin at all in the Senate. And then even in the House, it's a very limited margin. Um, perhaps I'm an optimist, but I think they will end up passing something. Um, I, and when something passes, the it will be very easy in some ways, as I think Democrats have this tendency to focus on what's not in legislation. But if there's anything like even what Manchin and Cinema support in the reconciliation bill, it would be a lot of progress on a lot of different issues, still with some things missing. And to focus on what's missing in it is would be, you know, I think harmful politically for, for Democrats. There's a, it's interesting because I see this real triumphalism, even when there's mixed results from, from Republicans and Democrats don't <laughs> tend to have that I think that same kind of temperament where they're going to, you know, talk about how great everything went. Um, and, and even when they're, you know, there are somewhat mixed results is a little more, maybe a little bit more honesty about that. I mean, where the main, like the main Republican party, I mean, I'm in Maine, the, 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 the biggest, the biggest uh, sort of governmental vote in Maine was that the Republicans lost a special election. And they lost it by 14 points. They flip, I mean, the district flipped in the state legislature, and yet they're out saying, oh, they did very, very well, pointing to, you know, some city council seats and such. Right. You know, so it's, uh, you know, kind of this triumphalism that, that I think uh, may be in some ways uh, a positive and very motivating for, for their party, bringing in support, bringing in funding, 
volunteers and such. But do you think, though, that what this wrangling between the Democrats that's going on, and of course, even if, as you say, they do manage to pass something, that it would have to be scored and you know, the sausage-making will go on through Thanksgiving. But is, uh, I mean, as much as you can blame cinema and mansion, is there also on the progressive side this tendency amongst progressives that they'd rather be righteous than effective? That I think that definitely can happen to say, um, you know, we have to get something done and close something off and move along and, and, and figure out you know, how, how to, how to finish something up, how to tie it all up. Um, and I think part of the problem is that because of the way the Senate works or rather really doesn't work these days, so much is going into one bill. If there was a possibility of doing things bill by bill and passing parts of the agenda as time went on, I think that would be a little bit easier, but everybody knows that it's so impossible to pass anything given the filibuster in the Senate, which of course could be done away with, but still exists, um, that that this just feels to, to be such high stakes in this one piece of legislation. Um, although it is actually possible to come back in 2022 and pass another budget bill that adds on to, uh, uh, you know, uh, and adds additional pro- kinds of programs. But in some ways, there's some of the people, you know, on the left in the House don't have a great deal of experience in the House and haven't had a lot of experience in really passing legislation. And I think that that in some ways makes it, you know, makes it harder. I mean, sometimes the people who are even not that well known have, you know, at least in the past, had just excellent histories in terms of, you know, just really getting legislation done. Um, Henry Waxman of California did an enormous amount on health care, but it's really not that well known. Uh, but, you know, we there's still the development of leadership and governing ability uh, for some of, the, you know, some of the progressive leaders in the House. So just in closing then, Amy Freed, do you think that Republicans could run two campaigns in 2022 and 2024? the Trump campaign for the Trumpsters and the more suburban housewife-friendly Yunkin-style campaigns? Well, they could, but I think there will be some very, very Trumpy people running. And depending, you know, depending on what states they're in and what districts they are, they're not going to do well uh, because, because uh, the, you know, there's this divide. Yunkin was able to go in, win the nomination, my understanding without a primary through this convention system and then had a long time to um, kind of create his image. People didn't know much about him. Um, That's not going to be true with some other people. There are going to be really big primary fights and um, some people will get the nomination who, who would, who would have a hard time winning the general election. Well, Amy Fried, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks. And again, I've been speaking with Amy Fried, who's a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine. She's the author of Pathways to Polling, Crisis Cooperation and the Making of Public Opinion Professions. And her latest book, co-authored with Douglas Harris, is At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponize Distrust from Goldwater to Trump. 
We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking at oral arguments in the Supreme Court today in the New York gun case, which showed the conservative majority's bias towards rural red states against urban blue states when it comes to guns, indicating that protections for citizens against the proliferation of guns in cities will be overturned. He changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down. And his mother cried as he walked out. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. He laughed and kissed his mom and said, You're Billy Joe's a man. I can... Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jake Charles, the Executive Director of the Center for Firearms Law at Duke University, who writes and teaches on the legal regulation of state and private violence, Second Amendment doctrine and theory, and the place of guns in the criminal legal system. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jake Charles. Thanks for having me. So today in the Supreme Court, there were oral arguments on the New York case where it seems that the conservative majority was sort of pitting red states against blue states, cities against rural areas, even the idea that within the state of New York itself, you've got Manhattan, but on the other hand, you've got uh, upstate New York. That was what I'm quoting, actually, uh, Clarence Thomas. It's one thing to talk about Manhattan. It's another to talk about rural upstate New York. And there were arguments about, in fact, from the Chief Justice saying that how many muggings take place in a forest. So I think the impressions are pretty clear. At least I got the impression that this law is in trouble and it's going to be overruled because somehow there's not the distinction between people carrying guns in urban areas and people's right to carry guns in rural areas. And so how did it strike you? Yeah, I think that's right. My general impression is that um, the folks that are in favor of broader gun rights should be uh, pretty happy after the oral arguments because it seemed like there was a pretty strong majority of the court who was uh, who were concerned over the amount of discretion that this law gives to licensing authorities to issue a license and determine whether or not someone has met good cause. And like you said, there was this issue that came up about the distinction between not only within a state itself, between the rural areas and the urban areas, but between and among the 50 states and how they regulate firearms. And one of the challengers' key arguments was that, you know, we are just trying to be treated the same way that gun regulation works in 43 other jurisdictions, and the state wanted to say, um, but we get to make our own call. Um, There are unique circumstances uh, that New York has to take into account, and that's why we delegate it to uh, localities, to the county officials that get to decide whether or not the particular circumstances that a person is claiming merit getting a concealed carry license. But this wouldn't be happening because of the 2008 District of Columbia versus Heller decision, right? That's the one that turned the Second Amendment on its head. The Second Amendment reads simply, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, by turning that around to making the second part the important part, as opposed to the well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, well, arguably, 
particularly in urban areas, we are neither secure or free because of the threat of gun violence. But somehow the idea that you can keep and bear arms, that's more important than the public's right to public safety. Definitely correct that we would not be where we are today were it not for the 2008 decision in the Heller case. Um, And as you're suggesting, Heller sort of read the first clause out of the Second Amendment. It had some arguments for why the two clauses are consistent. But and essentially, the about 1,500 lower court cases we've had in the 13 years since Heller, um, that clause has not been the the kind of preamble or prefatory clause has not been playing any role in courts adjudication of Second Amendment cases. And as you suggest, uh, the focus has been on the rights and the perspective of um, prospective gun owners and carriers about what it means to be safe and feel safe. And this kind of taps into a larger debate about the public safety risks and benefits of carrying guns in public places. And again, I'm speaking with Jake Charles, Executive Director of the Center for Firearms Law at Duke University, who writes and teaches on the legal regulation of state and private violence, Second Amendment doctrine and theory, and the place of guns in the criminal legal system. And that argument actually was pretty clear, wasn't it? I mean, when Justice Breyer was talking about the dangers of having guns at big sporting events where people get drunk, and even if they're law-abiding, things could happen and then, you know, people need to be safe in the subways. And then, of course, you got Alito turning that around and saying, well, what about people who live in, you know, high crime areas on the subways? Aren't they entitled to defend themselves? So that's the, the irreconcilable alternative reality we're talking about here, right? Right. I think that that brings up two points, one of which is there's this question of where you get to take your guns. And and we saw a lot of the oral argument actually focus on this question, what the Heller case in 2008 called sensitive places. And Heller identified schools and government buildings as um, examples, non-exhaustive examples of what sensitive places would look like. And we saw the justices in today's argument grappling with where else the state could restrict guns from permissibly uh, in line with whatever the challenger's theory of uh, getting guns in public was. And so I I think that is a signal that the justices were trying to think through, if we take your side, if we strike down this law, does that mean that the government just cannot ban guns from places like football stadiums, from places like um, New York City subways, from college campuses and universities? And, um, you know, the challenger's response was mostly to say, well, those are going to be analyzed on a case-by-case basis. We're just saying we want a gun uh, in public. We're not saying that it has to be in any kind of particular place right now or what the government's authority would be. And the second point is this notion of uh, crime and Justice Breyer's perspective that more guns in public is going to lead to more harm. And what we saw from Justice Alito, which is kind of the, the opposite perspective, which is more guns in the hands of good guys with guns are going to defeat the bad guys with guns. And it taps into uh, what is the kind of second major question in this case, and that is how should lower courts evaluate Second Amendment claims? So if someone goes into court and says this law violates the Second Amendment, lower courts have been taking into account the law's empirical effectiveness, what the contemporary cost and benefits of that law is. They might say, you know, the law barring those with a domestic violence conviction from possessing firearms is actually 
meeting its end. It's, it's, it's upholding uh, the state's interest in keeping women and children and other intimate uh, partners safe from that kind of violence. And the alternative test that uh, those like Justice Kavanaugh have been pushing for is a test that looks only at text, history, and tradition, which would make these contemporary analyses of costs and benefits irrelevant to the question of gun regulations. Well, but again, going back to the Second Amendment itself, that's the text, isn't it? A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, I don't know why you can't make the argument that we are neither secure or free. And talk about well-regulated militias. The people who stormed the Capitol on January the 6th, that, they weren't a particularly... They weren't an example of a well-regulated militia, and we've got all of these groups like, you know, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and all these militias out there running around in the woods with heavy military weapons. That's I think not that's what absolutely the, right. That's not what the Founding Fathers had in mind. Uh, and, you know, a musket takes a long time to load, but if you can have a... a clip with 50 rounds in, you can kill a lot of people. And we've seen so many examples of that. It's just sickening. I think that's right, that if you look at the founding era, they clearly distinguish between an armed mob, uh, which is what they saw with the Whiskey Rebellion and Shays Rebellion, which were not anything that they thought was constitutionally protected. And the distinction between that and a well-regulated militia, which is a militia that is under state control, that the state can tell you what weapons you have to procure, that the state can muster you out and inspect your arms and inspect how you're uh, undertaking your military duty, that the state can decide who gets to be a member of the militia. And so, uh, you know, I do think that you're, you're right that someone could make those arguments. The problem is that it runs into Justice Scalia's decision in Heller, which essentially makes the the, the, the militia clause of the Second Amendment play no role in how courts are adjudicating claims. Right, but well, there's a case now in Kenosha, Wisconsin, of a Kyle Rittenhouse right. who killed two guys and wounded another. He's on trial now, and he's getting a lot of support from these gun rights people. And the judge even restricted the court to the point where the jury could not hear, he could, they couldn't describe the people that were shot as victims. They could mm -hmm. only describe them as rioters and looters. So it's obviously the judges, you know, I don't know where the fix is in, but it doesn't look good for the idea of nailing this vigilante. But that's an example of what happens when these military firearms can be in the hands of, and this guy was only 17, I think, mm -hmm. of immature people. These guys on the Supreme Court, these conservatives, if they go ahead with what they seem to want to do in today's oral hearings, if suddenly in New York you can have, everybody can have a gun, my God, don't they understand the consequences? Haven't we seen enough of the consequences of the proliferation of firearms? Do you just have to go through more agony? Not that they're necessarily going to change after... I mean, if Sandy Hook didn't change people's minds, I don't know what will. So is there a, a kind of disconnect between these justices and their ideas of freedom, freedom to have a gun, as opposed to the freedom to be free from violence? I do think that's right. And I think um, one of the issues in this area in particular is that 
you can find empirical studies to support whatever viewpoint you want to have. And so the justices like Justice Alito, who think guns make us safer, or at least make the individual gun carrier safer, can cite to empirical literature, can cite to studies that say there are no dec- there are no increased uh, causes for concern in states that have uh, less restrictive, more liberalized carry regimes than New York State does. On the other hand, I think a lot of the most recent uh, kind of sophisticated analyses say that, in fact, when states do shift from this this is called a, a may issue, a discretionary licensing regime, to a objective shall issue regime where everyone is entitled to a license. Um, researchers found that in the 10 years after that adoption, violent crime rates are increasing 13 to 15 percent. And so I do think there's a little bit of, um, and maybe on every side here, a little bit of motivated reasoning um, and selective um, picking of the, the studies that support that person's kind of prior convictions. So just based on what you heard today then, Jake, What's your prediction here? The consensus amongst uh, pundits seems to be that uh, it's a pretty foregone conclusion that this Supreme Court is going to strike down this New York law. Yeah, so I'm hesitant to make predictions, but I I think it seems like that's the direction that this case is heading. And the only question will be how broadly or narrowly does uh, the court write that opinion because you know New York can lose in multiple different ways. It could lose at the level of the court saying you're not allowed to require a permit or license at all, in which case um, then New York would not be allowed to conduct background checks on people before they get before they're allowed to carry a license in public, wouldn't be allowed to uh, impose a training requirement before someone carried in public. So I think that's unlikely to happen, but that's kind of the most extreme way the court could make New York lose. The less extreme way, which I think is more likely, is for the court to say New York can impose a licensing requirement on getting a con- or on carrying a concealed weapon in public, um, but it can't require somebody to show a special reason. It just has to say that if you meet these factors, and those factors can include things like training requirements or background checks, but if you meet these requirements, then the state is required to grant you a license. So if I was uh, betting on the outcome, I would say it's it's likely that this law is going to go down, um, but that the court is probably not going to write a extremely broad ruling that imperils all licensing laws. But just in closing, it's not just New York that's going to be affected. It's what, 17 states, like including California and all the sort of blue states that have, have laws against open carry, et cetera. Yeah, I think six states have kind of the same type of regime that will be directly implicated by a New York by a ruling in New York, but they include, yeah, um, about 80 million Americans, about one in four people live in states that have these more restrictive regimes. So even though it's a relatively small number, it's a large uh, percentage of the population. Well, Jake Charles, I thank you for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Jake Charles, who's the executive director of the Center for Firearms Law at Duke University, who writes and teaches on the legal regulation of state and private violence, Second Amendment doctrine and theory, and the place of guns in the criminal legal system. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.